The very first verse of the Holy Scriptures, if you know it, say it with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. Well, today we begin a short two-week series that I've been wanting to do for a long time. We're going to talk about the origins of our universe and the origins of life and the debate that surrounds that hot potato issue. You might have seen this just about a month ago. Some reports came out about an archaeological discovery that allegedly sheds more light on our ancestors. Reports were carried in scientific journals and newspapers all over the world. One headline read, Meet Artie, the newest, oldest human ancestor. See this? Here's how the article read. Move over, Lucy. A four-foot-tall female nicknamed Artie, who lived 4.4 million years ago in Africa, has replaced you as the earliest, best-known ancestor of the human species. Artie's nearly complete skeleton, that's interesting, is one million years older than Lucy's, pushing back the point when hominids are known to have split from the evolutionary line that led to chimpanzees and gorillas, an international team of scientists announced on Thursday. Quote, Artie is not a chimp. Artie is not a human. Artie is what we used to be, said paleontologist Tim White, an authority on human evolution at the University of California in Berkeley. So there you have it. Yet more archaeological evidence supporting the notion that we all evolved from lower life forms, that we all descended from a common ancestor. When I saw... Artie's hairy image in the newspaper, it took me back to my high school biology class just a couple years ago that was uh, taught by one Mr. Doctorman. And I remember our biology textbook, and I remember the illustration in there, the image that showed the slow but unmistakable progression of human evolution. Remember those half-ape, half-human, kind of knuckle-dragging Creatures that uh, showed the progression of human evolution. They had these strange names like Piltdown Man and Nebraska Man and Neanderthal Man. They kept evolving over millions and millions of years until the last image looked kind of like Mr. Doctorman in my mind, modern man. (laughs) The message that I got in that class loud and clear was this. Anyone with half a brain believes that evolution is true. Yes, assumes that it's true. All smart people, like all scientists, believe in it, and only backwoods, barefoot ignoramuses believe something else. That's kind of the message I got. And that underlying assumption of evolution is still reinforced in our culture today in many places, isn't it? Science textbooks, PBS documentaries, Nat Geo, major media outlets, Museums, over the last few years I've taken our boys to the uh, Museums of Natural History in Chicago and also in D.C. And it didn't take long for them to pick up on it. Evolution is assumed. We all descended from lower life forms. That is presented not as a theory but as an assumed fact that all smart people believe. One evolutionist, a very smart man named Douglas Theobald, who holds a Ph.D., summed up his view of the current landscape like this. Quote, The worldwide scientific research community from over the past 140 years 
has discovered that no known hypothesis other than universal common descent, evolution, can account scientifically for the unity, diversity, and patterns of terrestrial life. This hypothesis has been verified and corroborated so extensively that it is currently accepted as fact by the overwhelming majority of professional researchers in the biological and geological sciences. No alternate explanations compete scientifically with common descent. So that kind of settles it, right? You read that, and it certainly seems that every reputable scientist alive believes in evolution. However, much to Dr. Theobald's chagrin, I imagine, over the last eight years, there are a growing number of very smart scientists who have become highly skeptical about Darwinian evolution, and they're starting to go public with their dissent. You can look it up for yourself. The website is www.descentfromdarwin.org. Start out with 100 scientists. Now you can see the names of about 700 scientists who have all signed off on this statement. We are skeptical of claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. These are not intellectual lightweights with junk degrees. These are bona fide scientists with doctoral degrees from distinguished institutions like Cambridge, Stanford, Cornell, Yale, Rutgers, Chicago, Princeton, Berkeley, Purdue, Duke, Temple. And then there's even a guy from Michigan, but we won't hold that against him. <laughs> the list includes some professors, university professors from the Yale Graduate School, MIT, Tulane, Rice, Emory, University of California and elsewhere. Let me quote just uh, two of the guys who signed off on that statement of dissent. Dr. Roland Hirsch has a PhD in chemistry. And he said this, life as revealed by new technologies is more complicated than, Darwinian, than the Darwinian viewpoint anticipated. Modern science makes it possible to be a scientifically informed doubter of Darwinian evolution. Did you hear what he said? He said, science enables people now to become doubtful of Darwinian evolution. Not faith, not religion, science. What I've been discovering is that evolution's greatest threat in our day isn't faith, it's science. As one scientist said, it's no longer faith versus science, it's science versus science. Then there's Chris Williams, who holds a Ph.D. in biochemistry from the Ohio State University. He wrote this. As a biochemist and software developer who works in genetic and met metabolic screening, I am continually amazed by the incredible complexity of life. Few people outside of genetics or biochemistry realize that evolutionists still can provide no substantive details at all about the origin of life. Well, you guys know me. You know that I'm no molecular biologist or physicist or geologist. I am a pastor by vocation and by degree. But you can check this stuff out for yourself. It's all over the Internet. I put some websites on the back of your study outline there for you to log on to, um, not like right now during my message, but later. <laughs> and check these things out. 
And then tonight, back here at 6 o'clock, we are hosting a very special edition of our Perspectives series. And I've asked one of our members who has studied this stuff in depth to come and present his findings tonight. And there will be a Q&A time. That's at 6 o'clock uh, back here in room 206 and 207. I know that it will be fascinating and faith-building for you. I want you to know that the debate matters. The creation-evolution debate, it matters. Dr. William Provine of Cornell University said this, If Darwinism is true, then there are five inescapable conclusions. One, there's no evidence for God. Two, there's no life after death. Three, there's no absolute foundation for right and wrong. Four, there's no ultimate meaning for life. And five, people don't really have a free will. You see what he's saying? If evolution is true, you don't need God. Darwinian evolution puts God out of a job, basically. If it is true, the Bible is a bunch of fairy tales, Jesus is irrelevant, the cross doesn't make any sense, the resurrection didn't happen, the gospel is unnecessary, salvation is foolish, the kingdom doesn't exist, and heaven is a myth. And like Dr. Provine said, there is no ultimate meaning for life. If it is true, there's no ultimate meaning, not for you, not for me, not for our kids. Think about a scenario where a a ninth grader, for example, or 10th grader is going to biology class at high school. And in, in biology class, he is taught that human beings are simply the end product of a long series of random chance mutations and that he was descended from primordial scum. Then the bell rings, and he makes his way down to his next class, psychology, where he's told that to have a meaningful life, he needs to have good self-esteem. Huh? They just taught me that I'm primordial scum. Where am I supposed to get this good self-esteem from? And is it any wonder that in our culture, more and more people are behaving and acting more and more like animals in some ways? It fits with the worldview. And so in this series, I want to share with you why I am a creationist. Today we're going to look at the scriptures. It's going to be Bible heavy today. And then we'll look at the design argument. Next week we're going to dive into the evidence from science, from geology and cosmology and physics and astronomy and molecular biology and biochemistry. I think we're going to see that scientific creationism is the best explanation for what we see as we look at our world. And through it all, I'm going to offer you my threefold rationale for why I'm a creationist, okay? I hope you'll consider it for yourself. I know many of you already believe in creation. My prayer is that this series will bolster your faith and you'll see that, that, that science actually, science done well, actually affirms and supports what you believe and you'll feel more equipped to engage in dialogue with people. Some of you might be skeptics. Maybe you've just assumed evolution is true like you've been taught, and I'm hoping that God will rattle your cage a little bit and challenge that mindset. Here are my three reasons. Number one, and most importantly, I'm a creationist because the Bible declares emphatically that God created the world, and I believe the Bible. That's my starting point. That's my presupposition. Two, Unbiased science, unbiased science, 
affirms the probability of a creator. And three, Darwinian evolution as a proposed theory of origins is woefully lacking as a viable explanation for the complexity of life. So that's the path I'm going to follow this weekend and next, and we'll see how far we get today, okay? I believe in creation first because the Bible declares the truth of creation. I decided long ago that this book was going to be the authority for my life. I got reasons for that. That's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. But the Bible is my authority. I believe it's the word of God. I believe it's God's true and infallible and inerrant revelation to mankind. I believe the Bible's not just for Christians. I believe it's for everyone. And I believe the Bible rules over me. God's word stands in authority over me. I don't critique it. It critiques me. I believe the Bible tells me the truth and distinguishes truth from falsehood. And the Bible is not unclear when it comes to this matter of how everything came into existence. Let me break it down for us. First, the Bible is clear that God stands alone as the only eternal, uncaused cause in the universe. Would you read these scriptures aloud with me from the book of Isaiah, beginning with uh, chapter 40, verse 28? Let's read together. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He's the everlasting God. He's been here forever. He is uncaused. Isaiah 45, 18, read this with me. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. He stands alone. He stands unique. One of the many problems evolutionists have is how to explain why anything ever existed in the first place. So there was a big bang. Stuff collided in space, and it all started there. But where did the stuff come from? Or where did the space come from? So we all descended from primordial goo, from primordial soup. Okay? Where did the soup come from? See, no matter what you believe, you've got to have a first cause something that caused it to exist in the first place. And the very first thing in that sequence needs to be something that was uncaused, something eternal. The Bible teaches that God is the first cause, the uncaused cause of everything else. Because of that, let it be, the whole universe and everything in it was created by God. The uncaused cause, God, caused everything else to exist. We read Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, Darwinian evolution postulates that humans are the end result of a series, a chain of random chance mutations. The Bible declares that we've been created in the image of our creator, God. So take your pick. What are you, a freak accident of nature or an image bearer of the divine God? Take your pick. And Think about this. It says that together 
man and woman were created in the image of God. And that is a potent statement with lots of implications. But one of the most stunning is this. Our creator has given us the ability to create. We're created in his image. He is creative so we can create. Think about that. When a man and a woman come together and produce human life, they are actually co-creators with God of an eternal human soul. That's amazing, isn't it? But in evolution, it's just biology. It's just chemistry. But in creationism, it's co-creating with the creator. Isaiah 45, 12, It is I who made the earth, God said, created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. Isaiah 40, 26, Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name? You ever been out in the desert on a starry night where there's no ambient lighting around and just looked up at the heavens and seen the, the immenseness of the stars in the sky? God says, I did it all. I created everything. Let her see, he did it by his own word, didn't he? He spoke it into existence. Many scientists now believe that the universe had a beginning and that it came into being in some kind of a photon explosion. You know what photons are? Light! Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light. He spoke it into existence. Hebrews 11-3. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at what? At God's command. So that what is seen wasn't made out of what was visible. Notice that God did not need any raw materials to create things. Theologians tell us he created ex nihilo, out of nothing. It's stunning to imagine that kind of raw power. That all God needed were his own words to create matter and energy and consciousness. God spoke, things appeared. The next point is hotly debated, even among evangelical Christians. But here's where I stand. I believe God created it in six literal days. Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Exodus 20.11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In my mind, you've got to do some linguistic gymnastics to make the Bible here say something other than what it says. That God created everything in six literal 24-hour days. To me, it appears that the writers of Scripture went to great pains to define a day as evening and morning so we would know the time frame with exactness. Now, if you don't believe that, I don't hate you. That's okay. But if you believe in God and in creation, then you don't need millions and millions and billions and billions of years in that process. Why not just take the scriptures at face value? In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. I believe God created everything by his own word in six literal days. Letter E, he did it for a purpose. Everything that God does, he does with a purpose. 
You say, what's that purpose? Read Colossians 1.16 with me. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. God created things for his own glory. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name, who I have created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Why did the creator create? That's a question that needs to be asked. And the Bible solves the mystery. He created what he created for his own glory. To reveal and reflect his gloriousness and his majesty, and his wisdom, and his power, and thus be rightly worshipped by his creation. That's why when we come together in, in your small group or on weekends, and we, we start to sing praises to God, and some of you just get lost in worship, you just get lost in the vastness and the majesty of God, that's why when that happens, your heart is flooded with joy, because you're doing what you were created to do, to bring God glory to spread his fame. Everything God created, he created to make his name great. That we would see that and spread that. You see, evolutionists, the best they can do is say that we exist for survival and for self-actualization, whatever that is. Bible paints a loftier picture. It says everything was created to display our creator's skill and power and gloriousness. Psalm 95, 6, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He made us. And then letter F, he left his fingerprints everywhere. Everywhere. You see the fingerprints of God in creation. Paul thought so. Romans 1, 18 through 20. The wrath of God, he said, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. You might want to circle that phrase. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. How? For since the creation or literally through the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Two things stand out to me here. You have to suppress the truth to deny creation. You have to suppress it. You have to hold it down. Why? Because it's popping up everywhere. Everywhere you look, you see the fingerprints of God. And if you want to deny that, you've got to keep that down. You've got to suppress it. Second thing that jumps out at me is that last phrase, so that men are without excuse. It's basically saying that God has left so many fingerprints in creation that mankind is responsible to seek after God and God will hold people accountable. And that helps me understand why so many evolutionists, despite the ever-growing amount of evidence to the contrary, continue to hold on to their creation theory, or excuse me, their evolutionary theory. Why? Because the thought that there might be a creator to whom I'm responsible, who holds me accountable, is an uncomfortable thought. I don't know that I really want to believe that. So I'm just going to hold on to this theory. 
and embrace it. He left his fingerprints everywhere. It says, um, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, literally from the madeness of things. Things appear to be made, and we're going to see that more in a moment. We won't get into it much, but you should know this. The Bible says that God created it all, and that means he also has the right and power to destroy it all. And that's going to happen according to the Bible. You can read it in 2 Peter 3. The elements are going to melt with a fervent heat. The heavens are going to be destroyed, and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And believe me, you want to be there for that. (laughs) You want to be part of the new heaven and the new earth through believing the gospel of Jesus. So, for me, I believe in creation primarily because my ultimate truth source, the Bible, tells me that God created everything. Okay? But here's the deal. With each passing year, it's becoming more and more evident that science actually affirms the notion of an intelligent, powerful, creative, conscious personal creator designer of all that exists. And of course, I'm talking about unbiased science. Science that does not automatically rule out supernatural causes. Science that follows the evidence wherever the evidence might lead. That kind of science done right affirms the creation record. We're going to look at this in some depth next weekend, but for now... Let me just talk about one aspect of this, okay? In one sense, you can boil this whole debate, this whole creation-evolution debate, you can boil it down to one question. Chance or design? Did it all come into being through chance or through design? Which of those two possibilities best account for what we see around us and what we see within us? Now, you know that Darwinian evolution is all about chance, right? Here's the textbook definition. Chance alone is at the source of every innovation of evolution. Pure chance, absolutely free but blind. Blind chance is at the root of the stupendous edifice of evolution. That's right out of the textbook. So chance is responsible for everything in that model. Random, undirected, blind chance produced everything you see. Is that a plausible hypothesis? Or does the evidence suggest some kind of purposeful, planned, directed design? Now, I would submit this to you. Most human beings, when presented with something that appears to have design or complexity, most human beings reach the conclusion that design requires a designer. For example, take a look up at this slide. How many of you have been to Mount Rushmore? Rushmore, you've seen it, okay? A few of you. Now you've all seen pictures of it. That's quite a quite a thing, isn't it? You look up at that. What human being would look up at that and go, "My my, look what the random forces of chance produced? Unbelievable." 
Look at the, the weather patterns just on their own, without any direction, random and undirected and purposeless. Look at the, the likeness to the four presidents. That is amazing. No one would say that. No, everyone would look at that and say, somebody did that. <laughs> somebody with intelligence. Well, maybe not the guy who was hanging off of Jefferson's nose, carving out his nostrils. That wasn't too smart. But somebody with intelligence did that. It has the appearance of design, of complexity. Except when it comes to evolution where people say, no, I think random chance pulled that off over millions of years. How about this one? A second example. Look at this slide. A couple years ago, I took my boys out to Southern California and we went to Legoland. Anybody else ever been to Legoland? Okay. If you go, take your wallet, take your credit cards with you. It's going to cost you a fortune to get in, but so cool. They've created these, uh, put, put that slide up there, guys. They've created these miniature cities that you can walk through, this landscape, you know, larger than this room, and they've made, they're made out of Legos. And you can actually walk through, and we did, mini versions of San Francisco and New Orleans and Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., we saw Lego replicas of the Golden Gate Bridge and the Hollywood Bowl and Griffith Observatory and the French Market and Mississippi Riverboats. And it was cool. I mean, we walked through all that. We were amazed. People were standing there marveling at these things. People were snapping pictures. Not once did I hear a parent look down at their wide-eyed son or daughter and say, Billy, Susie, look what the random forces of nature produced. The Hollywood Bowl made out of Legos, self-assembled, unbelievable what chance can do. No one says that. I even went to the website, the Legoland website. Here's what it says. As you can tell from the pictures of Legos Hollywood Bowl and Griffith Observatory, it's almost like being in Los Angeles itself. Pictures of Legos, San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge, Chinatown, and Fisherman's Wharf show that Legoland's master Lego artists took equal care when reproducing these famous California landmarks. Hmm. Master Lego artists did it. No one would dispute that. It's obvious. Design presupposes a designer. Complex things don't just design and assemble themselves. I had half a notion to bring in a big old tub of Legos, which we've got multiple tubs in our house, and just bring one up here and just kind of throw it out down the center aisle and ask you, what are the odds of that ever kind of assembling and coming together into the Golden Gate Bridge? The odds are infinitesimally small that that would ever happen. You say, well, what if you did it a hundred times? You could do it 10 million times. Complex things don't self-assemble apart from intelligence. There are a number of insurmountable hurdles for evolutionists when it comes to explaining the complex design found in the universe. Just one example. Take the need in evolution for things, as I said, to assemble themselves, complex things. 
Remember, in Darwinian evolution, there is no intelligence. So how in the world did complex living things assemble themselves together so that they work? This is a huge problem for evolutionists. You see, Darwin was at a great disadvantage. He lived in the 1800s, before the advent of powerful electron microscopes or the Hubble telescope. He did not comprehend the complexity of nature that we now understand here in the 21st century. He didn't know the things scientists know now. For example, he did not know about the intricate design of the bacterial flagellar motor. Did you know about that? Some bacteria have a little motor on their back that propels them through the substances that they go through. It's called the bacterial flagellar motor. It's a motor. It's got about 40 pieces to it. It's got a stator. It's got a rotor. It's got a drive shaft. It's got a propeller. It's got a U-joint. It's a motor. And it is an amazingly efficient motor. It can spin up to 100,000 RPMs, stop in a quarter turn, reverse itself, and spin 100,000 RPMs going the opposite way in a microsecond. It is an amazing little thing. Now, here's the deal. Howard Berg of Harvard University said, this is the most efficient motor in the entire universe. Here's the kicker. If you remove any of those 40 parts, any of them, it doesn't spin at 50,000 RPMs or 20,000 RPMs. It doesn't spin at all. It doesn't work. Natural selection cannot explain that. Scientists fumble and fall all over themselves trying to explain how that motor over time could have possibly all self-assembled so that the parts were all in proper relationship with each other so that it would work. They don't have a good explanation for it. Self-assembly is a huge problem for evolutionists. Just to illustrate this more, think about this example. Thank you. This is... uh, You know how you get gifts for your kids sometimes and they don't like it that much? I was well-intentioned, honestly. I was at the uh, Discovery Kids store and I picked up a few years ago this cool little four-cylinder model engine, Engine Works. It's like a replica of a four-cylinder engine like you'd have in a car. And I thought, you know, my kids will love this. Well, I've re-gifted it back to them now three years in a row. Rewrapped it every year with different paper, put it back under the tree. They tear it open on Christmas. Thanks, Dad. You know, and it goes back up on the shelf. So, bummer. But here's the thing. It says more than 100 working parts and that this engine actually will replicate the movement of an engine. And I thought, well, what if I took this out to Woodside Green Park, opened up the box, put all the parts out, 100 parts out on the grass, just laid them all out, and then said, have at it. Nature, wind, rain, Forces of nature, have at it. What are the chances that an engine would self-assemble in those kind of conditions? I've seen that probabilities. The zeros go like off the page. Highly, 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 highly improbable. That a complex molecular structure like that flagellum motor, or something like this. We haven't even talked about DNA yet, or the human eyeball, 
or what's inside the human cell, things that that Darwin didn't understand, or how our whole universe is finely tuned to a razor's edge to support life. You see, Darwin didn't know all that, but now we know how complex and interwoven the universe is, how designed it appears to be as we look through powerful microscopes and telescopes. And that reality is changing things for many, many people. Maybe you've heard of a guy named Lee Strobel. Lee was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune back in the 70s and 80s. He fancied himself an atheist and an intellectually honest journalist. Atheist, intellectually honest journalist. Together, those two things proved to be lethal for his belief in in evolution. What happened is his wife became a follower of Jesus Christ, Leslie, and she began to expose Lee to the message of the Bible, to Christianity, and to the notion of a creator God that Lee just found ridiculous. But he loved his wife, and he decided, I need to take this seriously, so he put his investigative hat on, and he started on a mission to examine the evidence and see where it actually led. By his own admission, he ended up stunned by what his investigation revealed. He tells his story in this book. It's called Case for a Creator. Great book. Recommend it to you highly. Here's how Lee Strobel describes his conclusion when all was said and done. Quote, he says this, I realized that if I were to continue embracing Darwinism and its underlying premise of naturalism, I would have to believe that nothing produces everything, that non-life produces life, that randomness produces fine-tuning, that chaos produces information, that unconsciousness produces consciousness, and that non-reason produces reason. And so based on this, I was forced to conclude that Darwinism required a blind leap of faith that I was not willing to make. (laughs) And I'm not willing to make that leap either. I've often instead to believe what the biblical record clearly states and what is affirmed by science, unbiased science, that the universe and our world and all living things were created out of nothing by the spoken word of God. And beyond that, I choose to believe the further revelation of the Bible. That same God formed a plan by which he entered his own creation at a point in history in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came and lived the life we could not live, died the death we could never have died. That His blood was the redemption price for our sins, satisfying the holy wrath of the creator against mankind, and that he rose from the grave. That's the Christian gospel, isn't it? I choose to believe the Bible is true when it says Jesus ascended back into heaven and now he's calling people everywhere to salvation and forgiveness of sins and to live in his kingdom, to live together under his gracious rule in gospel communities like this one that will spread his fame all over the globe. And I choose to believe that that same creator, God, Jesus, is coming back one day for his people and they will live forever with him in eternity in heaven. That's what I believe. I hope you'll come to believe that as well if you don't. Let's pray together. Great God of the universe, I praise you for your awesome creative power. And that that power not only caused you to create all that is, but your heart of love motivated you to craft the plan of the gospel that we might know you 
through Jesus Christ and his cross. Lord, I pray that no one within the sound of my voice would walk away from the clear revelation that you've given about yourself in nature and also the very specific revelation you've given about your son in the Bible that we might actually have a relationship with you. You didn't create it all and walk away. I praise you for that. You are good and righteous and holy and majestic and immensely powerful. So we worship you today. I pray in Christ's name, amen.